Um, Clive did say to me, didn't we ring each other earlier about our red trousers and red trousers? <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until he reminded me earlier on that I must change my clothing style. Will you please give a very warm welcome to Wing Commander Clive Rusty. None of you got anything better to do this evening. Huh? <laughs> Tough. <laughs> I'm just being wired up and made sure that it's all okay. Can you hear me at the back? If you can't hear me, I really would be appreciate if I'm getting too quiet to stand up and shout because it's a waste of your time, no end, and it's a bit disappointing for me if I'm gabbling away and you're not hearing the rubbish I'm talking. So um, I will keep an eye on the back and look for a hand up in the air and. Um, there we go. Well, I feel very privileged to have been invited to come and give my chat in such an august place, an obviously august audience, and um, I'll try not to make it go on all night, um, but you know, us, us test pilots do tend to gabble on too much about what we've done, because as you can see from the title, it's 55 years of flying fun. It's actually about 65 now, but my wife who, you know, if she shouts stand up, I stand up, sit down, I sit down. She said, no, that sounds much nicer, and it's, it's, you know, it scans well, and there it is. So, now, why is that picture up there? It's up there for three reasons, at least, because I was always told to start a talk with a pretty picture, so, you know, people can expect and hope that maybe they'll all be pretty pictures. I was also told to talk not too high a level, particularly if it's technical, not too level, but about in the middle. Well, that's halfway up the Matterhorn, and that's good enough. And the other reason, it was my main reason, it was my love of skiing that made me decide that I wanted to join, maybe I'd like to do some more flying. When I'd finished <coughs> my university, I had to go and do national service. And I asked to join the, air, un, the university air squad and I managed to get in. And, but people, when they were saying, why don't you join? I said, well, what do they do? And they said, well, they teach you to fly. And I said, I can't afford to fly an airplane. I can barely afford to be here. They said, no, if you keep your nose clean for a whole day's work, you get one and ninepence. I think some of the orders will probably remember that one and ninepence was less than 10p, I think. And they said, but if you keep your nose clean for a whole year, you get a 35 pounds tax-free bounty. Now this holiday, that I was on when that picture was taken near the, near the Matterhorn um, cost me £35. The whole thing for two weeks over Christmas and the New Year. So I said, I'll join. They said, well, just, you know, you do have to go through a selection process. But anyway, I made it. And that's why I became a pilot. Um, a bit more later on about, you know, why I moved on from being a pilot. Now, yes, <clears throat> so I went to do, after I graduated, I went to do national service, as everybody had to do in those days. And because I had got a preliminary flying badge, it meant that I got fairly fast-tracked through into f becoming a full, fully qualified pilot. I haven't bothered to show pictures of the chipmunk, which is what we flew at the University Air Squadron, but Having joined the Air Force and done the basic flying training in a provost, I then moved up to Middleton St. George, now Teesside, and learnt to fly on this lovely old Vampire T11, wrong one. Now the interesting thing is, that was two-seater side by side, didn't have any bang seats in it in those days, so you just had to hope that the motor would keep going. 
And on my, one of my first days when I was there, we were all in the bar being welcomed in. The guys who had been flying meteors before were trying to frighten us about, you know, how, you know, did, they real, did we realise how risky it was going to be? And the phone ran, he went over and he came back white-faced, and his, a friend of his had just gone in on a meteor. And the meteors did get through quite a lot of people. It was partly the aeroplane and partly a technique that was not quite correct on how to deal with a failed engine, but we're not into that. So I was lucky enough to fly this and I got my wings in due course and from then I went to Pembrey down the South Wales way to learn how to fight in the aeroplane this was how to fly the aeroplane and down there you learn how to fire guns and rockets and things like that to become an operational pilot and so having done all that all my training I get posted to a Venom squadron fighter bomber one that stands for in a place called <coughs> Seller in RAF Germany and the interesting thing once I was going through the museums there and I don't know if any of you've been to this lovely town it's not far from Hanover between Hanover and Hamburg and that's where one half of our royal family come from if you trace the lineage of our present Roman family I went to the to the museum once and I thought I was back in England because all the regiments were English regiments that I recognized the names of and so on um, but anyway I was there for a year and a half having a great time <coughs> And this was a time when it was very much the Cold War was on. We were only 10 minutes from the border. And we, if we inadvertently, we had to go out towards the Russian zone and then back in and on a letdown. And if we went too far, we had, as long as we apologized before they had a chance to make a complaint, that was the end of an incident. But it, it was quite a hairy time. And we regularly got scrambled on the airplanes that looked as though they might come too far our way. Anyway, it was a very happy time, and they, that was the Venoms, a single seat, a single engine. The, all the smoke is, there was a great big cartridge, you, you, when you press the starter button, it fired a cartridge, which pushed compressed stuff down, and through a suitable system of levers and link, linkages, it wound the engine up. So it was quite awe-inspiring when the whole squadron started up on a, on a squadron scramble or something like that. Right, moving on. I was, so I spent a year and a half there, um, in the um, flat squadron. At one time, the nearest I ever got to going to war, I was doing duty officer and I got a phone call from headquarters, um, Germany, and they said, um, your squadron's got to go to Cyprus because it was a Suez campaign. And I said, well, how do we get to Suez? He said, well, you fly from here to there to there to there. I said, yes, but we don't have any drop tanks. And I won't say what he said to me, he put the phone down. The rather nasty expedition, they sent the squadron up the road, but that was the nearest we got to who did have all the required equipment. <coughs> Sorry, that's, that's down there. So, having finished my tour <coughs> on that last day in Germany, I suddenly decided I don't really want to stop flying. This, this you know, beats the hell out of working for a living. I wonder if I could become, because I had a degree in chemical engineering combined with that. I found that a lot of the technical stuff you had to go through was, you know, wasn't a pain. And I thought if I can combine that, then maybe I could become a proper fighter pilot. So I finished my national service, came back to England, went to work for Dad for a while. I went for an interview with Douglas Bader, who I'm sure you all know. And he said, Clive, he said, sign there and you have a job as a pilot straight away. He was running the flying aircraft to that. And I said, no, no, I, I didn't have a chance. The, the balls to tell him that I wanted to be a test pilot. I said, well, I'll consider it. Um, but, you know, he offered me this job straight away if I had wanted to do that. It was quite a privilege to talk to him, quite a man. Anyway, eventually I did <coughs> apply to go in to join the Air Force. I went to Cranwell, 
to do a three and a half day selection board, which was quite gruesome. You had to write essays, two essays, one on yourself seen by your best friend. You might think that's easy, but remembering his career depends on the other is you as seen by your worst enemy. And they said, we're going to be watching you night and day for three days, so don't think you can get by with any porkies. Anyway, I, I managed to, to get through that thing, and I then got posted to 56 Squadron. Now, fortunately for me, the guy who was a senior flight commander there, who finished up as deputy chief of the Air Force, he was my flying instructor when I got my wings up at Middle St. George, going back to the previous picture. And um, so I think there was a little bit of skullduggery, and very quickly I got into the display team. Now, in that, that era, back in the late 50s, virtually every squadron had an, an aerobatic display team, and they were spread all airfields all over East Anglia, and nearly everybody did air shows, even if it was only for, you know, for Easter type or, or special things. So I got into that. Now, as it happened, at the end of that, before I had finished, they, the air staff decided I ought to go and do something a bit more responsible. So I was very lucky that I got posted from there. I'm oh, sorry, this is while I was on that squad, and I forgot we got posted out to Cyprus. This was during the time of Ioka. You may remember that that was when it was a pretty nasty time out in Cyprus. And this is on the south coast of Cyprus, and these things here are 25-foot square panels, and that's a hunter, that was squad one, and basically you fly down, take it in turn to fly down, and you put your gun sight on there, pull the trigger, bullets go splatting all over the place, and then when you've finished, you do this totally legal high-speed fly pass just to wake everybody up, and then the ground safety officer, or then the range officer, will go out and count how many holes there were in each flag. Now this is interesting, because if you were assigned that flag, it either had holes in it or it didn't, and it was your aeroplane and nobody else's. But the other thing we had to do, which I'll cover later on, I can't remember which order it comes in, we also had to do air-to-air -air firing. <coughs> That's practicing how, what you would do if there was an enemy aircraft and you were trying to shoot it down. Well, this large flag, you can get an idea of the dimensions, um, <coughs> it's about 25 feet long and probably about 15 feet wide, and that was towed behind a meteor, when, the, when I started flying, it was a mosquito, would you believe, it's that long ago. And you took it in turns to practice an, an intercept as if it was an enemy aeroplane. And when you thought you got your pip, that's a little aiming point, just there, you'd fall, fire the tr pull the trigger, the guns go and then you break away and come around and do it again until you ran out of bullets. Now, at the end of that sortie, the tow tug pilot will drop the flag over the airfield and all rush out to it. And the amusing thing was, you can probably just see here, there's some holes in the flag. Well, if I was flying an aeroplane and my bullets had got green paint on the front of them, which heated up during the thing, if it made a hole, it would leave a green hole. And somebody firing would red, and they, you wouldn't believe the arguments that went on when you accuse the other person. How can you believe that's red when it's obviously green? And guess that I was firing green. And it was used to cause a lot of quite heated but hilarious arguments. So moving on from there, I then, <clears throat> because I was decided I should move on, I got posted to the Black Arrows. Now, they were the predecessors of the Red Arrows. And um, that is a record that, as far as I know, has never been broken and counted. That's 22 Hawker Hunters in close formation, loop the loop. And that record, as far as I know, still stands. But that's not the biggest formation I ever flew in. <coughs> that was when 90 aircraft in close formation. Not there, this is on the way home. And I was flying a single-seat hunter and I just managed to reach up and take a photograph when we'd all eased out. But we had 45 javelins, 
leading 45 hunters, and we flew over Farnborough every day, all in close formation. Um, and that's very much loose. And then we had somebody asked, well, why did you put the javelins in the front? We said, well, we reckon that with 45 navigators leading us there and back, there was a 50-50 chance we would find our way home and back to where we were going. So that's the, my sick joke against my good friends in the, the navigational world. Now, <clears throat> from the Black Arrows, I was posted up to RAF Coltisall, um, which is near Norwich, and we were running an outfit where we were teaching people to fly the Lightning, which at that time wasn't yet actually in service. So I had to come down to Boscombe Down to fly a Lightning so we could be sure that what we were teaching the guys was some, bore some resemblance to what they would find when they actually got to fly the aeroplane. Now, this aeroplane was awesome. It really was. Um, that gives you an idea of how big it is. Now, if in the Hunter, which was no mean machine, it was a pretty mean machine, that's about where my head would be if I was in the cockpit. But here, you're sitting way up there, and you've got two Rolls-Royce RB211s, huge engines under there, and it's got reheat at the back. Reheat, for those who don't know, is you pump fuel in the back end, and it becomes almost like a rocket. It ignites and gives you a whole load more thrust, but it does gobble up fuel. It also had air-to-air -air missiles. The Javelin was the first one to ever have it, but these had radar-active things, and that is the radar in the aeroplane, and that's the engine intake to the aeroplane. This aeroplane <clears throat> was truly awesome. If you take off in an airline, I think I said, 30 minutes to cruise height, 1 minute 45 in this from brakes off. And, um, it, it, but it didn't have much fuel in it. It, it really used to get through a lot of fuel. And one time I'd actually catched a ride from Cyprus to Malta where my family had indulged for a summer holiday. And I privileged, I was sitting on the jump seat in the aeroplane before 9-11. And um, when we were about 10 miles out, Malta air traffic, our phone called up on the radio and said, would we mind flying, they'd mind flying a couple of holding patterns because there were two lightnings recovering short. And the, the co-pilot and the pilot said, well, what about us? We've been flying for three and a half hours. We're, we're short. Why should he get privileged? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist it. I said, do you know what a lightning pilot means when he says he's short? Well, yes, he's you know, getting low on fuel. I said, well, would you like to put it in numerical terms? Well, no. What do you mean? I said, well, he probably took off five minutes ago because they're practicing supersonic intercepts. And when he calls short, what he means is in two minutes' time from when he calls, it's going to go all very quiet because he's going to be out of fuel. And they didn't, didn't complain about the hold for the rest of the trip. <laughs> but that's just, just to put this airplane in perspective because it was such a quantum leap. And, you know, and as I say, there'd be more, better, faster, bigger airplanes, some of which are on the table here if you want to have a look at them later on. But that, that was quite something. Then, <clears throat> after I got enough ticks in the box, I was now eligible to apply to go to the Empire Test Pilot School. And if you were listening earlier on, that was what my aim was, that I might get to be a test pilot when I finished my national service. So I managed to get selected for the course. Obviously, my boss, who said, no, I'm not going to recommend you for it, because at your stage in the career, just like they told you on Treble 1, you're very near promotion. And I got this great big Defence Council instructions out, and I said, you don't have to support me, but you can't resist my you know, application. And he was such a nice bloke, I'm sure he made it good, and so I went there. But anyway, just quickly, what, what is the Empire Test Pilot School for? It was the first test pilot school in the world, um, formed in 1944, when they were losing so many pilots and aeroplanes 
during the war when people really didn't know how to test an airplane, didn't know, re know how to recognize when it was going critical. And so um, McEnroe, did Mac uh, never mind, decided he would start the Empire test pilots called McKenna. And um, basically, you can see there's a large transport airplane, helicopters, medium-sized bombers, medium-sized trainer, twin-piston airplane, a Jaguar, supersonic lightning. And basically, your job, in very simple terms, our job was to make sure that those airplanes, the real airplanes, when it was a new one, is fit for purpose. I wish somebody had invented that remark years and years ago because it just says so much all in one, one quick phrase. It's got to be fit for purpose. If it's an airliner, then it's got to have a probability of better than one in 10 million that it will have a fatal accident. You know, so a lot of you would run out of time to make your 10 million flight in a transport airplane. But it, it was just, you know, it's just one simple phrase. That's what we had to do. And it wouldn't matter whether it was just a new knob on a, on a radio set or the whole airplane. It was all dropping bombs, firing guns. And um, so I was lucky enough to do that. And the, what I can say, I mentioned university. If I had worked as hard at university as I did in my one year there, I could have taken two to three degrees simultaneously and still had time to drink all I wanted and chase the girls. And I'm really not joking. Basically, you had ground school in the morning, and then early, late morning or early afternoon, you briefed, and then you test flew all afternoon, and then spent the rest of the night writing up the report. And in those days, there were no typewriters. You had to handwrite the whole thing. And if you made a mistake, you couldn't just cross it out and put another one, or put you know, the cover over the thing. You, you had to start again. And it was pretty, pretty hard work, but it was a lot of fun and very worthwhile. So what happened after that, we'll see. Yeah, I don't bother to read any of these words here, because it'll take you a long time. Just notice this number thing here. Two famous test pilots called Cooper and Harper, <coughs> were very famous in this period of time, just before I went to test pilot school, realized that with lots of the airplanes they were testing, they didn't have any instrumentation on, well, they didn't have tape recorders on board, so they couldn't make their comments. And sometimes when you're flying an airplane like some of those that ran out of fuel very quickly, you didn't really even have time to make comprehensive notes. So they invented this system where all you had to do from each test you were doing, and that would, of course, be been on your um, knee pad, you just, if you gave it a one, you said whatever it was, it wouldn't matter if it's a radio set or testing the whole airplane, doing aerobatics or whatever. One is it's as good as anything I've ever flown. Two and three, they're all perfectly okay, and that's it. You know, you can go ahead and Mr. Ministry or, you know, the Chancellor and consider buying airplanes. Four, five, and six says, I'm not saying it's not almost fit for purpose, but if you listen to my comments and you go all the way back through here to find out what made you give it that number, that means it, it's worth spending some money on to make it really good. And seven, eight, and nine, you say, as far as I'm concerned, that's a load of rubbish. You use slightly less um, <coughs> terse terms when you were talking to the poor bloke who spent his life designing it or the bloke building it. But that basically said, this will not go into service. And as I said, there's no as a helicopter, an airline, a fight, or whatever. And 10, control will be lost during some part of the required exercise. Well, I'll show you at the end an example of a 10. Basically, it means if you, you, give it, if you left the airplane, you jumped out of it, left it in the field somewhere, and you walked back, you had to give it a 10 because obviously you didn't bring it back and complete the exercise. <laughs> so just bear that in mind for later on. But I said, please don't try and... But they were two famous guys, Cooper and Harper. Would you believe George Cooper? I rang him the other day to wish him a Merry Christmas, and he's still alive at 102. 
it still stand, sounds, you know, fully vital and where with it. And let's hope we all make it that far. Right, <clears throat> so having finished this arduous year, where <clears throat> you were working so hard, I was lucky that I got my choice. I got posted to the Royal Aircraft Association at Bedford on aerodynamics research flight. And what was marvellous, we had nine individual experimental aircraft. We just had four test pilots. And that was, that was our lot. And by the time, just quickly, that is the handy page 115. More about these later on. That was to prove to the Americans, amongst anybody, that a slender delta was the right shape for supersonic transport. The Americans said, yeah, we agree totally aerodynamically and all that, but we don't believe the handling qualities of a slender delta will be capable of being coped with by an ordinary pilot. So this was built to prove that they were wrong. That's the Navro 707, which was the, the research aircraft for the Vol Avro Vulcan, which you can just see there. What a lovely shape. And that, these are two prototypes and research aircraft for the Lightning, the one you've seen the pictures of before. You can see a very similar thing, but they didn't have quite as big engines. And that there is the, that, that is a short SB-5, a pure experimental aeroplane. And you could, it was variable sweep on that one, but to sweep the wings, you had to put it in the hangar, take under all the nuts and bolts, move it back for another one. So you couldn't, if, you, if it was swinging in the air when you were in the air, you were having a real big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and there we are. The, our, our two areas of research, <clears throat> primarily, there were lots of other things, was Concorde, supersonic transport, and vertical takeoff. And I believe some of you may have had the privilege of listening to talk from John Farley who used to be my number two at Bedford for several years. Marvellous bloke, and I gather you're going to be privileged to hear from him again soon. So I'll try and make that one myself. But this was an amazing aeroplane, it really was. And um, I've had the good pleasure of flying it with Brian Trubshaw on a couple of test flights. He wanted me to join him on the thing, but would you believe when I went for the medical, he, his doctor, and they'd already had to fire two pilots, said I should be wearing these. I didn't actually wear them for another 14 years, but he said test pilots, in my view, have got to have perfect vision, and yours is pretty good, but it's not good enough. And the trouble was, because of what happened to the comets, you may remember windows blew out and things like that, and they had decreed that all of the original test flying in Concorde would be worn with space, your pilots would wear spacesuits. And they never designed the space helmet to be worn with glasses in those days. So he said, very sorry, but, you know, I can't employ you. So, in fact, I had a pretty damn good career afterwards, but I missed out on that. So he gave me some flights with him in the left-hand seat, and it's a totally remarkable aeroplane. But it never could have made a profit. There's an article up there somewhere which explains why. And basically, <clears throat> you can't drop sonic bangs on civilised people. And it, so it just became an owner. All it could do was fly to New York in the morning. Guy could do a day of work, come back home again go to bed. For the business people, it was marvellous. But there are lots of other places in the world besides New York to go to. Right. <clears throat> That's the Slender Delta research aircraft, because as I said earlier on, the Americans said, yeah, great to, you know, for aerodynamics, but it will be too, too much Dutch roll. You won't be able, to, be able to control in flight. So this was built for Concorde research. And this picture actually was taken on the way to the Paris Air Show. And the picture there was taken by my wife. But you can see there, 79 degrees of sweep, just one engine, uh, fixed undercarriage, a pure research aircraft. But that thing, you could fly down to very low speeds and still had good handling qualities. And one point, when we were interested in finally deciding how slow it could go, 
the first thing we wanted to do was visualize the airflow over the wings so you can just see little things here there were gas canisters there and you could on you'd be flying at the test speed they wanted to know what the aerodynamics were like an oster you all know a little piston engine very slow two three-seat airplane that would fly chase with a photographer a boffin and the pilot and with this thing at full power where the speed at which the Oster could fly, even with the Oster with full flaps, engine at idle, full rudder, both doors held open, the 115 at full power was descending faster than the 115. So it was a surprisingly tricky job to fly chase on that thing at very, very low speeds. And then one day, um, so that was on the way to the planet. So one day, I can't remember exactly when it was in the program, but we were asked to see how slow we really thought we could go. You had to be at about 120 knots for landing and takeoff because otherwise the back end would hit the ground. <clears throat> so I sent the other guys up, the four of us, say, and they came back and said, 35 knots, boss. And the next one said, 35 knots, boss. I said, you sure? They said, yep, yeah. it's 35 knots. We pulled the stick back, you know, and we couldn't make the airplane nose up or anything, which is a definition of, you know, not in full control. So I thought, well, I suppose I ought to go and have a look. You know, I'm the boss. So I went and had a trip on it, and I did all the tests that had been prescribed to do, thing of the Cooper Harper ratings, and I slowed down. And at 35 knots, sure enough, I pulled the stick back. Nothing happened. Just the nose was way up in the air, full power. And I said, they're right. I taxied, land, came back and landed, landed at 120 knots, was taxiing back in, and I suddenly went hot and cold all over. What a complete idiot. I am, but at least the other people are idiots as well. The reason it didn't go through on the 35 knots, there was, for those of you who fly, there was a little pin sticking out of the airspeed indicator, and the needle stopped at 35 knots. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we honestly, we just don't know how slow we got in that airplane. It was quite incredible. We, we nearly had a, a, um, a phantom sticker on the side because we were doing one of these things with the Oster taking photographs and we were slowing. We were probably doing about 60 knots and I couldn't see this because I was just carefully formating. But they said they saw a phantom that was from Milton Hall somewhere Lake Neath where the Americans were. And they said he'd obviously spotted it because he came zooming in on a sort of attack profile and he was obviously going to try and slow down to be with us. Well, we were only doing about 40 knots and the first phantom pilot knew was when it suddenly boom! And fortunately, he lit the burners and he flew away, but we thought we didn't really want to have to put a phantom stick on the side of the airplane. There's one, one killed. <clears throat> right, and then the, the big thing was that that was a 115 was slow speed stuff, but they also wanted to know aerodynamically what it would be like at supersonic speed. So they took the original FD2, which Twist broke the world speed record at, at over 1,000 miles an hour, which is a far greater achievement than the guy in America who did Mac, more than Mach 1, because he wasn't really flying an airplane. He was dropped from an airplane that climbed up to height, and it was basically a rocket. This, Peter did it for, for sure in a real airplane with a real engine, and he had to go backwards and forwards over the course twice, and how in God's name he did it with the amount of fuel that the airplane didn't carry. Um, you know, the average flight in the 221 was 20 minutes. And I don't mean 21, I mean 20 minutes. And um, so he had to do that, taking off from Boscombe down, boom, boom, and come back and recover. And the amazing thing, on one of his friends, he actually had an engine failure. And nobody in their wildest dreams would have thought of doing a dead stick landing. Dead stick landing is a you know, glide landing with the engine out. And he actually brought the airplane back from near the Isle of Wight, did a successful landing at Boscombe down on the main runway. Quite a remarkable character. Anyway, <clears throat> what they did, 
is they unfortunately took the one that broke the world speed record to modify into this BAC221 to have a look at what the real Concorde shape would look like aerodynamically handling wise and everything else and um, that was one of, one of my main projects as well when I arrived on Aeroflight and eventually I flew it on I think the 21st flight it was all done down at Filton now that is unique that is the only time two aircraft ever flew together that was what that when that looked like that that was the one Peter Twist broke the record in but as I say that was rebuilt took over a year and a half and when I arrived at Bedford to rebuild it and that was there you can just see my boots just there um, but it was you know quite a very historic picture and I was very proud to have been involved in it now here's some other odd things about the ingenuity we used to have I like to think we probably hopefully still have in the British aircraft industry that's a hunter there just a chase airplane every when you, whenever you fly an expensive airplane like that and an unknown one you nearly always fly a chase obviously you can't go supersonic in the hunter but he will be there to report if anything could give the pilot any guidance now what is ingenious as I say that first of all was the FD2 it's the, most of the, the, the bit in the middle is the FD2 um, but it's got they realize that the takeoff and landing speed with these slender deltas would blow the tires that the um, FD2 had so that would you believe on both sides obviously is a lightning undercarriage because the lightning obviously used to get to go up to about 200 knots or more before the tires would blow but they also realized that at the task that the speed at which the tires would burst the pilot still didn't ha have enough elevator if it stayed looking like the FD2 to raise the nose before the tires would blow so what did they do they took the nose wheel off a gannet would you believe and put that on the front so the pilot that's virtually in the landing and takeoff actually he was virtually in the takeoff position when he started his takeoff roll and that to me was the real ingenuity there was an awful lot of the FD2 in that that airplane all, all built into the BAC 221 then we move on the other main areas of activity which I'm sure you've heard with very eloquently for those who are lucky enough to come from John Farley and I believe he's coming back together <coughs> the interesting thing about the Harrier is it's the only military aircraft that I'm aware of that has ever entered service when nobody in the head shed down thought of writing an operational requirement for it normally planners and you know strategic people think we've got a shortfall here how can we fill it they design an airplane or whatever and, and so it goes on this came out of some some people who designed the engines and people who designed the, the fact they could have rotating nozzles on it and so the p1127 was born um, that's what I first flew on the V-Stole game as did John <coughs> to give you an idea in that you'd start sometimes just to do test flying in that for the in the vertical mode you taxi out put the nozzles down and you'd be over a grid and you probably had 220 pounds of fuel aside and you were burning 170 pounds a minute in the hover so a flight lasting three seconds you know was quite a long flight in those days you'd pop up you would do the input that the scientists wanted maybe if you're lucky just another one and then stop it and then back down again and that that was you know and it had to be over a prepared service but this is in the days what they had then there's the um, they couldn't decide whether it had an operational utility or not so they formed this tripartite Kestrel squadron and the Kestrel was just a you know an advanced version of the Harrier although it was called the P1127 at this stage still to see if it had any with the handling qualities 
an operational capability that was satisfactory. And to do that, um, we borrowed the Kestrel and we had a huge hole in the woods cut by the army sapper engineers. And they were really brassed off when they came along with these big, great big chainsaws and their boss said, no, no, you, you, anybody can do that. Here or each of you is a long handled axe. So they cut this thing 300 foot long and 100 feet wide clearing for us to see whether we really could operate away from main bases because that was one of the most significant advantages of a Harrier. It could well have been John Farley flying that one. And then the other airplane we had there <coughs> was a short SC-1. I think SC, people often ask me, I think it's special contraption, but I'm not sure. Um, but this was, it certainly was special. This was, you know, obviously before the Kessel. Basically, there's four OB-108 lift engines there pointing downwards with control in the cockpit. You could vector them forwards and backwards to a certain degree, but never all the way back. On the top, there's another engine there, which is an Orpheus, and that just provides horizontal thrust so you can, you know, fly forwards at a reasonable speed. And the secret of all these V-style airplanes, there's nozzles there which can, by the pilot moving the controls, can give sideways forces or up and down forces. And rolling, you can just make out there, there are nozzles in the wing. That's air bled off from the engine. And as you move the controls, suitable system of leakers and valves and things, because it's not electronic, open the valves so you've got control in all three axes. And again, this aeroplane <coughs> had a monumental endurance of about five minutes. <laughs> And um, one day when uh, the boss had gone away and left me in charge, he didn't tell me that for the rest of the day an air marshal was coming on a visit. So suddenly I had to look smart and present, meet him, and he wanted to see. So I showed him what went on on air flight, all our interesting experimental airplanes. And I said, well, I think you ought to see the blind landing experimental unit, which is fitted in virtually every airplane now, but it was in the very early days then. And so I took him over there. And basically, we sh both shared a Comet and we shared a Canberra and we both flew the Meteor for, you know, sometimes flying chase. Um, but I introduced them, they were all lined up as they would be, and I introduced him to the first, but in the next one I said, this is a flight lieutenant B. I'm keeping his name quiet for good reason. He said, oh, B, he said, and, and what do you fly? He said, well, sir, I fly the Comet regularly, which we share with Aeroflight, and the Varsity, and the Canberra, and the Meteor. And he said, I've just started flying this airplane, the SC-1. And he said, oh, really? He said, do you fly it very much? And Jim said, yes, sir, no, sir. And this bloke had total sense of humor failure. He said, don't you understand my question? He said, of course I do, sir. He said, well, I'll ask you again. Do you fly it very much? And he said, well, I have to say the answer is yes, sir, no, sir. He said, all right, funny boy, what do you mean? He said, well, sir, as it only flies for five minutes at a time, the other way, as it's a very, very complicated airplane, it's, it's requires an enormous luck for the boffins to sort and the engineers to sort everything out and prepare it as fit for flight. But apart from that, as it only flies for five minutes at a time, even if they get five sorties out of it in a day, which is a heck of a lot for the SE-1, it isn't very much. This guy went, and he moved on. And at the end of the day, I think I put him off for the rest of it. He was just about to slam the door on his executive jet and fly off. He said, oh, Rusted, he said, I mean, meaning John, does the SE-1 really fly for five minutes at a time? I said, good God, no, sir. I said, sometimes if we're lucky, we get six minutes. And he slammed the door in my face. <laughs> Flew off. I think they take out the laugh cells sometimes when they get to a certain senior level. <clears throat> and there it is in flight. And then the next thing was, we'll wonder whether this aeroplane has got a naval capability. So again, we borrowed a Kestrel, <clears throat> which had much higher performance than the P1127, those things. 
Um, and that was, a, for those who don't know, there was a tripartite squadron was formed, I think I mentioned, with airplanes from the Americans, the Germans and ourselves, and an equal number of pilots. And they spent a year operating away from main bases to see if it had an operational capability. <clears throat> and one of the funniest flying stories I ever came across was we, they were operating out in the fields, and this time I think they were operating complete, completely unprepared surface other than prodding it. And Colonel Barkhorn, who was a top-scoring fighter ace in, in the German Air Force during the war, a lot of that large number on the Russian front, but nevertheless, he was the top-scoring ace overall. And I was there observing it, having flown in in our little helicopter and then watched what was going on, and it fell out of the hover. I don't need to tell you why. It fell out of the hover and went splat. And, you know, the wings came off and the back end broke. And fortunately, the farm with it didn't burn. But the funniest thing I've ever heard, as he walked away from the airplane, he said, 361 British aircraft destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> and you obviously think it was as funny as I did. I mean, a really lovely boat. Anyway, back to Bulwark. <clears throat> so, anyway, it, it produced some definite indications that this airplane might be successful as a seaborne airplane. So that the Navy would have, you know, airborne fighter cover wherever they went. The next slide was just coming in with the Kestrel. You can tell the difference in the Kestrel. You'll notice the outriggers are in a different place on the Harrier. But this is one we just borrowed from this tripartite squadron every now and again when we want to do something a little above and beyond. And um, so this was me bringing it on to, to the... There, and there we are. And on board HMS Bulwark. Um, that's little me in there. You can see these huge intakes, and for those of you who don't know, these are the nozzles here. Four, hot nozzle, cold nozzle, and they're both controlled from a single lever in the cockpit. That's all it is, which is next to the throttle. This long, long nose thing here is for in experimental flying. When the air starts to divert, when you're travelling at any speed to go around the aeroplane, it gets a bit turbulent. So on aeroplanes which have got an experimental role, they have this long, long nose probe with, the, with all the pressure and speed measuring instruments on the front so that the boffins can actually know that what you found was at what speed and at what height. Uh, whereas the cockpit instruments may show you something, you know, considerably different. Right, from there we moved on. With lots of very interesting trials on Bulwark. Um, they had me once trying to hover um, they thought, well, maybe instead of all coming in this way, which is conventional airplanes, we, we could come in and face, you know, face inwards and land that way, maybe. Well, what they had forgotten, and I stupidly hadn't realised, that once you're facing that way, with the hot air blasting down, it comes up the side of there and goes into the intake, and all of a sudden, that's 20% of your thrust gone. And fortunately, I backed off, and it's sort of like champagne cork coming out of a bottle, but we gave that idea up very quickly. And then back to the hole in the woods, we now wanted to see exactly what was involved in going in and out of holes in the woods, get some real quantification, and it was also laid on for a press thing, so I'm pretty sure that that's John Farley in there. What was amusing, then we tried it in the SC-1, which were two completely different ways of doing vertical takeoff, to see whether it was easier or not easier in that. And in those days, it was much, much easier doing it in that than it was in the... Um, the 1127 Kestrel, but obviously that didn't really have any operational role because normally you're not likely to get that thing up to supersonic speed and hack an enemy down, get back to the ground in five minutes. So um, this purely was an experimental thing, but it, it opened up our eyes to all sorts of different ways of techniques and things 
for getting in. And bearing in mind this thing does have only five minutes of fuel if you, if you take off vertically and fly out, fly around and come back vertically. But we did have, we developed techniques where we get airborne, shut down the four lift engines and do a lot of work with just one engine running and then start them up again for, for the vertical landing at the end or risk a conventional landing. But again, just like the 221, the landing speed in ordinary, just wingborne on these tires was um, about, well above the burst speed. So, you know, it was very much just a means of getting home in an emergency. So here we are coming into land. That long nose thing I talked about, the probe, single seat, remember. There, not much juice left. And we're down. And then we went back. Now, at that time, Civil V-Star was everybody's idea. You remember they, they broke the railed record going from London to New York, operating from, I think it was a, a power station into somewhere, not, not downtown, but that was the idea. You know, we've got this marvellous concept. And the idea here, Civil V-Star, basically they would have like the SC-1 vertical lift engines in, rows of them there, and they would be essentially just in similarity to the engines in the, in the Harrier. So there would be a bit of both. And so they thought that was a possible idea. They convinced themselves it was a way to go. This was their original design. You can see all these lift engines down here. And there's the Pegasus, the engines, for, for the same as the Harry. You can see what it was. Um, 90 to 96 seaters, cruise speed 570, and so on and so forth. And they talked themselves into believing that this really had a capability. I, I think, I, I mean, it's easy to be wise after the event. But I don't think they thought of all the practical. For example, when I said to Rolls-Royce, I said, what engine instrumentation are you going to give us for that? He said, oh, we'll just give you a green light when they're all running and a red light when they're not running. And I said, no, no, I'm sorry. We have to do, have all of them. He said, well, you wouldn't be able to monitor all the things. I, I said, well, we certainly wouldn't fly an airplane where we didn't know whether we had enough engines to do a vertical landing until we flatbedded on the ground. Um, but they did build this. <clears throat> and this is a small console, that's four, I'll call them SC-1 engines, so you know what I'm talking about. Two Harrier engines there, and that had, there you can just see the nozzles there, and that thing flew, and it flew quite successfully, and um, proved that the concept, concept, not, not the reality, um, technical concept, I mean, was a viability, maybe they could build, just blow this up to an, an airline-sized airplane. But before they built that, this was the test rig. And again, if you've got good eyesight, you can see me in the back of my head just there. And there are the four SC-1 engines down there. There are the nozzles at the back and the front. And to roll it, they varied the thrust on the engines. And that was all very good. But again, it only had five minutes fuel endurance, but you didn't have a fuel gauge in the airplane. What happened when you were on, sitting on the ground, her Dragon Hour, we used to call him, sorry, ladies, Dragon Balls, um, he would start a stopwatch when he heard the engine start to wind up. And at the end of five minutes, he would wave the flag, which meant you've got about 30 seconds or so to get down again. Where I nearly met my maker was, <clears throat> I was doing first up and down and roll, and I suddenly thought, well, you haven't actually looked at what, how easily you can yaw this. And so just as I hit full left rudder and went from about that angle to that angle, where, where the dragon hour was just out, outside the screen, he started waving the flag. But I was going the other way from him. And so they said the funniest thing was watching this bloke getting red and red of face, running this way. And fortunately, I did a 90 degree turn. I thought, well, that's it. Let's see the other way. And then I saw this guy who's redder now than the flag. And we popped it down and uh, 
Sorry, I touched the microphone there. Sorry, I just showed you how easy it can go wrong. <laughs> anyway, the other thing that is amusing, that now, if you think your mind back to the Cooper Harper rating, you remember? One's great. We were doing this. That's um, Dragonau there without his red flag. That's Bill Chin, who was Mr. V stole Bedford. And this is down in Dornivac. You can see there the F 104, which the German Air Force had back there, the Widowmaker, as it was known. <clears throat> and we, when you saw me flying before, it was deep midwinter down there, and it was cold, very, very cold. And so we said, we really can't go on much longer because, you know, you're losing control of your fingers. So vast expense, having given it a Cooper Harper 9, you've got a piece of canvas around the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep on trying, keep on trying. But there's, that's Bill Bedford. That's Drury Woods, the American who flew the Dornier, whatever it was called. And that's Hugh Merriweather. And that's young me. You haven't changed at all, have I? I'm also a very good liar. <laughs> Right, now this is another amazing airplane. <clears throat> this research started when the Americans, uh, well, the world was opening up, all sorts of countries, you know, that had airfields, and there were lots and lots of short airfields, airfields with relatively short runways, so a great deal of research went into how can we make these big airplanes land on shorter and shorter runways? Because nobody at that time could conceive that every, all of these countries all around the world would build long runways, which, as you'll hear in a minute, they did. But this was for tactical transport. Now, you can imagine, this is in a place down in um, France, that's the Breguet 941. <clears throat> and this aeroplane, they said to me during the overall briefing, you will find no problem, you can take this off in 100 metres and you can land it in 100 metres. I said, I could hardly land my chipmunk in 100 metres. What do you mean? They said, well, we'll show you. And it, it was designed, you know, purely to get very, very short field performance. <clears throat> and the way they did it, technically, was there's the head-on view. You can you see four huge propellers. They were all, the engines were interlinked, so if one engine went, you didn't have any asymmetric problem. So, you know, you, you flew still like the airplane with less thrust. They also put huge flaps on it, so that the power you needed to fly the approach at 55 knots because the wings were creating a lot of lift, and with all those flaps there, you had to have a very high power setting. So the airflow that was going over the wings was probably doing about 150 miles an hour. So the handling qualities for an airplane going very slowly were very, almost as totally as good as an airplane flying at its normal speed. And <clears throat> I promise you, my first landing in that airplane I did without any great skill was, was 100 meters. And we were flying down to the, when the cloud tops started to hit the top of the hangar, the French guy, he said, well, I suppose perhaps we'd better quit, quit now. But it was just so easy because you're just going so slowly around and about. It was guaranteed that the engines, you never had, as I said before, suffer asymmetric thing. And also, the other reason it landed so quickly, of course, what I should have said, the oleos, as soon as they compressed, you had a very high power setting on the approach, immediately went and snapped into reverse thrust. So it was, you know, everything that was difficult about landing in short fields was basically automated. And I said, as others said, well, what about if you get this happening when you're in the air, you know, at um, 50 feet, for example? And they said, well, no, it is designed, it absolutely cannot go into reverse thrust and all those big things. Be that. 
So they took it to bits, they took it to America, I can't remember which test base, and they put it together and they flew it, and somebody managed to get it to go into full reverse thrust at 50 feet. And there weren't enough bits left when it finished its vertical landing, very, very firm, to bring it back. So that was the end of another good idea. And then they worked on, you know, the Hercules, another European-based transport aircraft, and managed to get away. Now, the other end of the game, <clears throat> There were all these short runways around the world, so can we get it, the big airliners now to land on shorter landing strips? And this was the Hanley Page jet flap. Now, basically, there's an Orpheus engine in there, and 30%, only 60% of the thrust at full power comes out there, but 30% comes out on slots all the way down the back of the wing. So instead of being flaps about that wide, they were equivalent to 20-foot span flaps. So this thing could fly down quite comfortably to 69 knots with full control, and quickly, just like on the SC-1, there's nozzles there, and there and on the wings to give you control when the ordinary aerodynamic surface is no good. So it's almost like a mini SC-1. The only trouble is if the engine stopped at 69 knots, you were just a bunch of scrap metal. And by the time this got near, we displayed this at Paris and Farnborough, but by the time this was getting near to working towards a viable product, all these countries around the world had decided for prestige reasons they were built long runways. And it's the same thing because this technique was hopefully going to be applied to something like the VC-10, which had already had a big penalty. But by the time the VC-10 finally entered service, you know, nearly all the important places in the world had long runways. And the VC-10, marvellous aeroplane that it was, suffered the range and endurance, well, not so much range and performance because it had a short field, relatively short field capability. All right, much longer field than we were trying to get in with this. Anyway, the next one is just amusing for all of those you think you know about aerodynamics, we're both flying at the same speed. It's very slow for me, and it's very fast for him. And my wife took that out of the sport airplane on the way to the Paris Air Show. That's just all, all our support equipment. When they build these experiments, they, they, almost everything technical in that was different from the other one, which is around the other side of it. We had different starting systems. We needed big racks of compressed air. And so this was our support airplane, a Beverly the Circus, as we called it. And then we talked about the aeroplanes we had. We, had, we were using the Comet, <coughs> sharing it, that's the Isle of, the needles off the Isle of Wight, for those who don't know, it's the Comet 4. We were basically using it when BLU weren't. They were doing automatic landings, and I flew with them very early on when you literally came in and you did six touch and goes and we never saw the runway. Just thirty go boom, and then you open up and roll again. again. And we were working on a, not quite, but virtually, Sorry, a blind takeoff. What, what the clever scientists had done, they'd put, um, yeah, right. <clears throat> they had worked out that if we could provide a takeoff director for the pilot on takeoff, which took into account all the performance characteristics, you know, whether the engine was performing okay, and so on and so forth, we could get the takeoff, certified takeoff speed at a given weight reduced a lot, or at a given takeoff weight airplane could carry a lot more, well, payload is money to an airline. So th this was a really high priority project. And we had got to the point when we were ready to start testing it in a real airplane, and we came up with the ministry and we recommended all sorts of s relatively simple airplanes. They had to have two engines, so you could see whether it could deal with an engine failure. Had to have two pilots, because one, the test pilot, the evaluation pilot was hooded, and we needed a seat for the scientist, the boffin, you know, to come alongside and monitor the program. And the Navy was scrapping some sea princes, I think they were, and we said, they'll do fine, we did some tests. I said, no, that's a capital expenditure, we can't do that. But we've discovered that there's a Vulcan 
at Farnborough in the scrap heap, its fatigue life expired, but we've done the sums, and if we take out all the operational equipment, because you're not going to try and take out Moscow or Leningrad, and you're not going to want to fly for hours and hours and things like that, we can give you 500 hours on a Vulcan. And um, just before I finish this one, because it coincides with that, when I was due to do my conversion onto a comet, <clears throat> very early on in my tour, the lovely guy Ian Kepi was destined to do my conversion onto the comet. When I went to work on the Tuesday morning looking all forward to it, they said, sorry, Clive, your um, conversion's delayed to the afternoon. And I said, oh, why? He said, well, Ian's not available this morning. I said, why is he ill? They said, no, he's doing his conversion this morning, and when he's converted, <laughs> he'll do your way the afternoon. That's the gospel truth, honestly. Well, much the same thing happened when we finally decided that we, the only airplane we could use that they offered us was this stripped-out Vulcan with no ability to go anywhere, and it didn't have the latest modifications aerodynamically. But they said, you know, if we take all that out, we can give you an endurance two, three hours, no problem at all. That was more than we needed. So we moved from that to that. Now that's a V2, we, we have, but that's the only photograph I get. The B1 had a straighter wing. But again, there's the, the difficulty then compared with what people have to do to convert on airplanes now. My conversion was uh, one flight with the CEO of BLEU, who was an ex-Vulcan pilot, and then I was Vulcan qualified. But again, it's not as silly as it sounds, because we weren't going to try and bomb anywhere or do anything clever. We were just doing these takeoffs and landings and things. So the engineer on board knew where every single rivet on the airplane was. And then John Farley came up with a brilliant idea, because we said, well, look, it is a very complicated airplane. We're taking pilots up from BOAC and the airlines to see what they think of this thing to help get the certification. And, you know, there's these ray banks and banks of complicated instruments and switches, not so much in switches and things like that. And he had this brilliant idea. It sounds so simple. He said, well, they're, they're all in banks, fortunately, of switch panels. So we get the plastic overlay over them. And in bright, easily red ink, we go, it's a red panel. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The engineer wouldn't say hydraulics to standby. He said, blue three up. So the co-pilot could be a perfectly, totally competent co-pilot. And he hadn't got the slightest idea what the switch was going to do that he moved. But we had a competent co-pilot talking with the engineer. And so you know, all we had to do was drive this lovely airplane around the skies. <clears throat> right, the next thing, <clears throat> this was largely to do with Concorde, again, coming back on that. The world was getting very big on their in-flight simulation. In other words, we'd had, we'd had very sophisticated simulators at Bedford, where you could fly the FD2 and all those sorts of things. Um, but they were just ground-based simulators. What they did in France, <clears throat> and this evolved to other airplanes as well, this thing here, if it was a warplane, fully cleared off operational Mirage 3B, that would be a bomb or a fuel tank. But in this case, it's a highly sophisticated computer. And that's two-seat Mirage 3B. And the way you do this evaluation, you sit in the airplane <clears throat> with a cap French captain, after of course you've had a glass of wine and a few things, and the briefing, and then you go and fly and do your, as taught at ETPS, an evaluation of the Mirage 3B. So you've got in your mind, I know exactly how Mirage 3B handles with all the things I'm interested in, the Concorde. So you land, <clears throat> and you debrief, you get rebrief for the second story, have another glass of wine, and this time when you take off, this 
when you move the stick, you are not moving the controls on the airplane at all. You're sending electronic signals to the computer, which will then make this airplane fly like they think Concorde should. So, first of all, like the Mirage is. Well, you're in the Mirage, so as long as in the second sortie, when it was entirely a computer moving the controls, it felt exactly like the one you've flown previously, that is a very, very good airborne simulator because there's certain things you have to be in the air to get a real assessment. So you land and you have another drink <coughs> or whatever. And then this is now programmed for Concord. And so you get airborne, you go through the whole profile again, and you are now in the mind, and as far as you're being assured, the effects you're seeing is what Concord would be like to fly. And um, it really was an amazing piece of research. But are there any French people in the audience? I do love them, honestly, but when, we, when I was after, when this thing was over, you know, you, you all get around, and I said, well, tell me, this was to the French guy in charge of this program, I said, you're doing this simulator here, we've got the 221 in England, we've got the flight simulator at Bed Bedford, and there's another flight simulator down at Bristol where they're building the thing, what happens if the results don't all agree? <laughs> then you are wrong and we are right. <laughs> Very simple solution to the problem. They're very, very, very easy to work with, actually, but every now and again you get that thing. I'm sure we use just as much arrogance from time to time. Let's see what's next. Yes, <clears throat> I talked about variable stability. This was the aeroplane. The reason I show this, it's actually, I think it's a B-20 something else. Anyway, it's a variable stability. That was a war, World War II bomber aeroplane. But that now is just the same concept as the aeroplane you saw before. It's a variable stability aeroplane. And, would you, and this, was where they, this was where they used this Navy test pilot's always, and they take them up in that, as at ETPS they did in the Bassett, which was computer controlled. So in one aeroplane, they could show them the flying characteristics of all sorts of different types of aeroplanes. Nothing's quite like doing it for real, but this gave them a great deal of education in, in what to expect. And that one, I talked about the 115 doing its Dutch roll and all that sort of thing. This thing did a replication of the 115 that was unbelievably... It's Dutch roll. Dutch roll is when it's yawing and rolling all the time, but it was almost exactly the same. And the only thing is, the controls on the left, which are the real controls, which have to follow what the real controls are doing, what you're doing here is just sending... I thought the thing was going to come off. It was moving so fast. Trying to keep up with its simulation task. All right, moving on. Time's running by. Oh, these were other... I went on a tour for, for a year with, with a bunch of high-paid simulator boffins. Bedford, and this was a variable stability, I can't remember what it is, but YHC1A twin rotor, and they had tried to assure me that was behaving exactly like the P1127, you know, the Harry. I said, I'm sorry it isn't, and I tried to explain why. They said, well, if you're going to criticise it, we won't ask you again. And I said, well, if you don't want to hear what I've got to say, why are you wasting your time and my time? I'm telling you, I've flown the Harry and you haven't, and, there are, and I can give you good reasons why you technically can't make that fly exactly like a Harry. With a basically simple, when you move a jet V-stall, the second you move it, you're moving the thrust as well. With this thing, you tilt the rotors, and then after a while, the roll comes on. And there's a time lag, but it's enough to make a huge difference. Anyway, from there, we went on to this lovely aeroplane. This was in Ottawa. <clears throat> and that aeroplane, would you believe, these things are not fuel tanks, they're computers, which control this variable stability aeroplane, same as before, we took off from there in Ottawa, went out over the plains, and he said, right, I've set it up for the SC-1, which you've heard enough about already. What do you think? And I said, 
being very clever, I said, well, it needs a bit more directional stability, you know, a bit more lateral roll power and everything. He said, okay, hang on. And we just dropped down and landed in a field out in the, in the prairie land. And he just hang on to the stick. And he jumped out and he lifted the lids on these two computer boxes and went twiddle, 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 twiddle. He said, right, take it. Now what? I said, that is now like the SC1. You know, amazing research tool, one of many, as you'll see. This was at Calspan, which is very close to the border with Canada. And these are all very conventional, well-worn, well-proven airplanes, but they're all flying simulators for variable stability aircraft. And that one there is an interesting concept, the way I think brilliant minds work. They were really looking at displays and various things, <coughs> pilot control mechanisms, for an airliner. And they said, well, hang on, when we do this, um, A, we're going to have a heck of a job modifying the existing cockpit. And anyway, when, when we're doing it, we're simulating it when the pilot's on instruments. So they came along that they said, well, stuff that. We'll build a cockpit down the back here where the pilot can't, in front of him is a wall, but he's got all the instruments he would have up there. And now we can do the evaluation without having to modify, you know, go into a great deal of detail. So that, that worked very well. Then I went to NASA Ames. <clears throat> um, this is where they had built, but they never built for, for many years a successful vertical takeoff and landing machine. But this one was at NASA Ames, and this was inside a hangar. And I had, in the nicest possible way, to tell them that if they believed anything they got out of that, they want to be very suspect. Because when you close the hangar, the first time I flew it, the hangar doors were open. It wasn't too bad. But if you can imagine being putting in a simulator, it doesn't matter how well they've done the aerodynamics. If you've got a wall, the hangar doors close about three feet in front of you. Your instincts are slightly modified. And the first time they let me loose, I, I got out of sync and I finished up in the back of the hangar, out of control. And they said, um, waiting there, they said, gee, sir, you did very well there. I said, I couldn't have got up here any faster upside down if I tried. <laughs> but anyway, that we think, we, we, when I say we, the clever people, not me, but we agreed as pilots, that one of the reasons they were slow, so slow to develop a successful vertical takeoff landing machine is they believed too much of the rubbish they were getting from this. This really didn't bear any relation to flying a real vertical takeoff and landing. That's my opinion. I'll probably get shot by it. But um, this was much more interesting. <clears throat> this was a huge hangar at Langley. That is, you may recognize, is a long time ago, the command module for the Apollo, for the moon landing. This is simulating the lunar lander. And you may know when Neil Armstrong took off from the moon to come back to get back to that, which if he didn't, he wouldn't come home, he had four seconds worth of spare fuel. So it was pretty important that he did it right. And this thing here, that's a contraption. You see a huge great hang. You start off, if this room was a hang, you start off up the top up, up there. You're lying on your back like he would have been in the moon land, looking at everything. All the lights go out, and the only thing that's lit up is that. Otherwise, you're in deep space. And you have to practice flying this thing from one end of the hangar and dock with that. And that's how they taught Neil and subsequent astronauts for a long time how to actually cope with maneuvers in space. And it obviously worked very well, so um, that's how they got to the moon and back. That was where they practiced landing, but um, that had become discontinued. Basically, they had a simulator that was hanging in there, and that performed just as if they were trying to land on the moon. Um, right, then we had a very amusing time. They realized that in my work at Bedford, an awful lot of assessment flying we were doing was related to flying big airplanes. And I hadn't flown a big airplane, so they said, well, what we'll do is we'll give you a course on, with 
British Aerospace, but not British Aerospace. What was BOAC as it was called then. Um, and we'll give you a ground, have a ground school, the simulator, and then you can go and do some flying in a real big airplane and see what you think of it. We did all the ground school, all the simulator, and then BOAC got in touch with the ministry and said, what insurance policy are you taking out when Clive's flying our airplane? In case he breaks it, they said, well, we're the government, we don't do insurance, we do indemnity. And BOAC said, well, we're not the government, we're the industry, and no insurance, no fly. So we thought that was the end of that. And then, I'm not sure quite who and how it was done, but Aer Lingus came up and said, ah, oh, to be, I went, no, I must make it. love it. <laughs> I can tell you, I had two of the most amazing weeks in, in Dublin's Fair City. Um, the first one, which has got nothing to do with flying, we went into a pub, the, the Boffins, we went into a pub to have a drink, and they, I went to the act, and they said, we're sorry, we're closed. But they open up the, on the other side of the road in, uh, before we do. So what shall we do while we wait? They said, have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really amazing. Anyway... <clears throat> So we, we got, we did the, I said, when I got there, I said, well, what about, you know, is your airplane like the BOAC 707? They said, oh, to be sure, it's just come across the Atlantic, it's practically brand new, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what can we do? Well, they said, you tell us what you want to do, and we'll tell you if you can't. And we told them, we wanted to practice, you know, what it was like with engine failures, all the things that might happen with your airplane. And um, <clears throat> anyway, so he said, you, you tell us, and we'll say no. And we practiced engine failures on takeoff, landing on two engines, stalling it, and doing all sorts of things. And we'd been there about nine days, and the financial director of Erlinger suddenly came into the room, recorded the briefing once, he said, Clive, he said, I've just had BOAC on the phone, and they want to know what we're doing about insurance. He said, you know, I never thought of that. And he looked me in the eyes, you're not going to break the bloody thing, are you? I said, no, that's, he says what I thought, you just carry on and have a good time. <laughs> And then, talk about the icing on the cake. <clears throat> My wife came over to spend a week, or to spend a few days with me, because you know, it was really a rather nice place to be. And then the phone rang again in the notional office, and um, the Marquis of Donegal, who had an estate about 40 miles north of Dublin, wanted to know if Erlingers could put on a 707 to liven it. It was a light aircraft, but could they put a 707 over to liven it up? So they said, to be sure, and they, they said, Clyde, you can have the left-hand seat on this, and we, you, won't, you won't have to pay for it, because it's a trip for us, you see. And Julie came along as a stewardess, which she, she was with BOAC at the time, and um, the, co the engineer was a chap who was just starting his conversion onto jets. And so we went off, and I said, we got airborne, I said, where's the map? Because I mean, he said, I go fishing there, just follow the river. <laughs> <laughs> We, we had three noise complaints before we'd left, we cleared Dublin. <coughs> and then we're flying along, and he said, there it is. And he explained a kink in the river and some trees. He said, now get the nose down, let's get some speed on. So we put the nose down, and then there's, there's an ever exceed warning, speed warning on there, and it started to ring. So I reached out to close, to ease the throttle back, and he slapped my head and said, you keep the bloody throttle where they are. It's going to go a lot faster before it comes apart, Clive. <laughs> and he said, now get the airplane down. And if you can imagine an entrance to this field, you, you're all a huge field. And there's a huge poplar tree about, you know, 20 yards that way and another one that way. We came through between them at halfway, halfway up the tree height. And we then proceeded, or he made me put on a show that I'd have been proud to have done in a hunter. <laughs> We're twisting it around from, you know, 70, 80 degrees of bank. And Julie had never seen an airliner put more than 30 degrees of bank on, and she didn't believe it. Anyway, we landed, and we went to the pub, and she was due to fly home that evening. 
but with Irish hospitality, made the Tuesday night flight. So <laughs> <laughs> I, if I think, tell you I love the Irish, the, all the ones I met, bloody marvellous. Um, what comes next? Oh, that's right, then one of the other values of being a test pilot, you went to evaluate other countries' aeroplanes. <clears throat> and this was the Draken, which was a self-built Swedish aircraft, and that was very nice to go and evaluate that. Now, if, if on one of these slides, it will be on for only five seconds, maybe ten, as there's lots of lady in the audience. But I did mention you have to test the aeroplanes in all weather conditions. Oh, just to finish Bedford, that was at the, the, um, in the Shuttleworth Trust, and that was kept at Bedford, so we had the pleasure of keeping that, that running and flying a little, you know, little extra bonus. Eric, then I went to the ministry and said, what's my future career? And they said, well, you can forget flying, you can forget anything to do with R&D, forget anything to do with procurement. Um, then what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm leaving when I'm 36, thank you, which was a couple of years away. I went back to the office with my boss, who was a lovely bloke, a fighter controller. He said, how did it go, Clive? He said, it didn't look as though it went very well. So I said, no, I told him what I told him. He said, but I know what your next posting is. He said, what's that? He said, you told me I was getting this job. I said, come on, boss, it's flying. It's test flying, you know, procurement. He said, do you trust me, Clive? I said, I suppose I do. So I wrote this pathetic letter to the air minister saying, on due consideration, I decide the RAF is my life. And 10 days later, I get post this posting notice. Now, what did we do? Well, this was, the key word here is avionics. We weren't necessarily testing an airplane, whatever it was, for the airplane's sake, it was things that were on it, and, and it would be radios, you knew electronic systems, and, and all that sort of thing. And that was the airplanes we had, the fixed wing airplanes we had. Um, that was the first world's fly by wire airplane. When you move the stick, there were no le suitable levers and linkages, electrical signaling to electric motors. That was the Institute of Aviation Medicine, where they tested all sorts of aircrew equipment and analyzing effects on human beings. That was the aeroplane where we renewed our instrument ratings and did all the practices that were mandated to keep current. And um, <clears throat> one of them, oops. One of them, as I say, was the world's first fly-by-wire aeroplane. I'm not a hundred, I keep pressing the wrong button. I'm just not 100% sure which one is which, but they were identical as aeroplanes. It's just one was fully electronified and the other one wasn't. Um, then moving on from that, we also flew all these helicopters. Now, at this time, I had never done a helicopter course. My, my conversion to a helicopter was all an accident. When we were at Bedford, we had the whirlwind I mentioned, where we used to support the Kestrel <coughs> trials. And what we realized is that when we came to work in the morning, this huge acreage of airfield was very prolific in mushrooms. But the firemen always used to get out on the airfield and pick all the mushrooms before we could. So we developed the technique where we get in just before they went there and we'd get airborne in the helicopter. So now they had to stay in their fire stations. We'd go out to the middle of the airfield. Somebody would hop out, pick all the mushrooms up and get back in. <coughs> I had asked, you know, I was waiting for my helicopter course and Bernie, the, the, the then Navy helicopter pilot, said to the boss, can I fly Clive in the helicopter? He said, well, yeah, of course you can. Why not? Of course you can fly him in the helicopter. So one day... Some time later, they're in the briefing room. There's just, you know, John Farley and the two other pilots. I wasn't there. And the boss looked around and said, where's Clive? They said, well, he's in the helicopter. He said, well, I figured that. But, but who's with him? 
He said, oh, that's, I won't name the bloke's name in case he gets shunned. He said, well, he's with Joe Bloggs. He said, but Clive's never done a helicopter course. He said, oh, well, I'd better recall him then. He said, what's the point? He's done it now. <laughs> and I didn't actually do a helicopter course of any sort until just before I got posted here and I went and did the whole nine yards, you know, do professionally mountain flying and everything else. But it was very interesting to fly all those helicopters. That's the, the biggest was a Sea King, and this was a, I'm not even sure anymore what these little things were. Um, that was the um, Puma that held the world speed record, still does, I was reading a paper. I think it's in one of those bits of paper there. And um, it was a lovely time there. But we also, this is to wake people up in the audience, by the way, who've gone to sleep at all. But, but the Army still do fly that in full, close formation with four aircraft and still loop it at air displays all over the place. Eric, we also had Comet at Bedford, at Farnborough. And you can see this thing here. That's a huge bathtub which was put on a Comet to have a sideways looking infrared radar in it. So the idea was when, you know, countries were at a war with each other, getting too close to the game. If that was the enemy there, you'd fly down here up to 200 miles inside, or a lot more likely on the border, and this radar would map everything for 200 miles out into enemy territory. <coughs> but that, of course, is pretty destabilizing. So that's a Comet 2, that's a Comet 3, which we had at Bedford, and that's a Comet 4, which was modified to put Nimrod controls on it, because it was, this was destabilizing. So it had all sorts, it had Nimrod controls, the Nimrod bit there, and so on and so forth, and we, could, we christened this the Conrad, because it was half a comet and half a Nimrod. Conrad, I mean. <coughs> but here's the most, one of the most extraordinary aeroplanes I flew. This is CA-84, VSTO, it's Vertical Short Takeoff and Landing Research Aircraft. This was a project between three nations, Canada, who built the aeroplane, um, America, who provided the flight test facilities at Patuxent River, and the UK, who provided two parts with the head-up display and all the flight test instrumentation. So it was a tri-national program, and it was just amazing because the way this thing flew, um, the propeller, the engines were interlinked, so you never had to worry about one engine failing. You know, the, the other engine, you, right, you lost thrust, but you didn't have any handling problems. And when you were flying along on this thing, I, I have to demonstrate it, it's too difficult to explain and I don't have enough pictures. So can you all see this? You're flying along conventionally like that. <clears throat> and then you decide you want to decelerate. So you throttle back and you start trimming the engine wings up like that. Now because that airflow going down there would impact on this, this at the same time goes up on that. Before you start the whole exercise, that starts going round and round like a midi helicopter. And as you get to about there, well, we'll go straight to there, otherwise it takes too long. Now, if you want to roll the aeroplane when you move the stick, you change the pitch on the propellers to get roll. If you want to yaw it, there's um, no point in moving the tailplane because there's no air going over it. You stand it So you move your rudders, move the ailerons. Sorry, the roll, move the ailerons. So one goes that way. And that's, sorry, that's right, that's how you yaw it. That, sorry, I get confusing myself. So the rudders move the ailerons. And if you want to pitch it, um, then that's what controls whether you go up or down. And somewhere in between, it's a bit of everything. And would you believe, with a chap called Ron Ledwidge, who's no longer with us, he achieved a vertical, completely blind vertical takeoff, accelerating transition to conventional flight, so that he looked like that, 
all the way around the Chesapeake Bay, came into land, and he landed vertically in exactly the same spot within a few feet where he'd taken off three months after this program started. But the funniest thing on this whole program, and I, I hate to be rude about dear friends of mine, but um, when we started this program at Patuxent River, the admiral of the base had a party, you know, to welcome everybody to it and get this program. And he was, amongst other things, he's saying, we're so glad to be hosting this program to see if we can develop an all-weather capability for the AV-8B that can't at the moment fly in all weather conditions, blah, 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 blah. So when he came down to the audience, I bided my time. I said, gee, Admiral, I wish I had known that the airplane, which we call the Harrier, couldn't fly in all weather. You mean you've got them in England as well? <laughs> Tell that story to John Farley and see what he says. <laughs> well, there we are. Just a few quick pictures of it in flight. That's just to prove that it's in flight. That's half wingborne and half thrust airborne. That was up in Canada where we were doing our initial conversion courses. And there it is on the ground. And then at the end of this, I came back from a tour one day and I thought I was in trouble. And um, having been told, you know, I wasn't doing the right things, I came back to find I was taking over as OC flying at Farnborough, which was yet another flying tour of experimental things. So somebody got it wrong, fortunately, at the headquarters. This is where there's no point in having power if you don't use it and abuse it. As I, said, I had done that comet clearance, so I was comet qualified. This was a comet that was going down. Can anybody guess where we are? It's going down the Grand Canyon on the way to Las Vegas. And um, so I decided I was the boss at Farnborough, you know, I was going to fly it. And so we flew down there. I had three days in Las Vegas, but I couldn't resist that photograph. It was lovely. Um, moving on. I then come back from the trip, I should go back again because it's amusing this one, came back from this trip after I'd been away for three weeks, got into my office one morning as OC flying, there's this huge pile of paperwork there, <coughs> and the boss came in and normally he used to come in and say, come on Clive, let's go and have a cag, have a coffee and go in his office, sit on the couch, have tea, coffee and biscuits and have a cag over what went wrong, which blah, 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 the whole admin and all. This day, the off, my door opened, and he said, Rustin, my office now. What have I done, or what have I not done? So I go into his office, and there's no suggestion of tea or coffee or anything, or sitting on the couch. He got a hardback chair in front of his desk, he said, sit. And I thought, wow, it's got to be something really serious. And so I'm sitting at the desk looking at him, and Fortunately, just before I broke and started offering up all my apologies for what I'd done, he grinned and he said, you're posted. No, he said, you're posted. And I said, well, that's serious. And then I was about to start making, he said, you're going to take over as OCA squadron, the fast jet test squadron at Boscombe Down. I remember this all after the air secretary had told me no more flying, no more test flying and everything. So I, I told him, I said, boss, if you kept your mouth shut for another 30 seconds, you would not believe the tales of misdeeds. <laughs> things done, I should have done, things undone, you know, but there we are. And so we now move on to this lovely world where I take over, OCA squad doesn't exist anymore now, just quickly, what happens now with any fast jets, they appoint test pilots on the first mainline operational base who, with the direction of what's going on from Boscombe down Boffin and everywhere else, will do the test on situ, in situ 
working airplane. It was just the amount of equipment you need to, to maintain something like a tornado or typhoon is just ridiculous. So they decided they'd, they'd move the test flying remote. So the boffins are still at Boscombe down largely, but the actual flying is done by protocol at other places. Just quickly, it's a Buccaneer, Jaguar, a Phantom, a Hawk, a Hunter, and a Harrier. And we had to do all of the flight clearances on those airplanes to make sure something was fit for going back right to the beginning, fit for purpose. And by the time I got there, this airplane was already nearly a year old. And I think we were on to about our 162nd modification, which all had to be proved. Anyway, that was um, what, a, what a nice little surprise that was for me. We had, amongst other things, the Jaguar released to service trials to do, as Anglo-French airplane. And I say we had to fly, you can see how many things you can hang on it. And every time you hang something on it, every time you fire something from it, there have been things in the past where the missile being fired destroyed the airplane that it came from. You have to, you have to make sure it leaves the airplane, then that it hits something. And even, it doesn't matter what you change, it has to be flight tested under the control, obviously, of the boffins, scientists, to make sure that it is fit for purpose. And as I say, when I took over the job, they'd already done about 170, but that just shows you how much clutter you can put on the airplane. And everything you change affects the way it flies, both before you release it and then after you release it. And again, it has to leave the airplane without self-destruction. And with the Harrier, we were in a very interesting, that, there's the Comet. That was, we were flying chase on the Comet that took the other photograph and it took this guy. And what we were doing there, we were, t we were experimenting, which proved very successful, of what's called VIFing, vectoring in forward flight. And basically what that means, you're in combat like this, the enemy's coming around behind you, both doing maybe four, 500 knots, and the Harrier just suddenly puts the nozzles down and basically stops. This guy goes through, put the nozzles up, and he's dead duck. And that, that was used very, very successfully. I, I don't think it ever actually was used in war because they never actually went to war, but um, it was an amazing concept that was introduced there. And that was quite a lot of fun, test flying that. <coughs> and then came the lovely days when we had to see if the Harrier had a seaborne capability. You saw the earlier trials, which we did on Borg and things like that. Just quickly, one of the things we had discovered was that this carrier, when it's steaming along, on average at 30 knots to recover its fixed-wing airplane, so the touchdown speed is not too high. Um, when we came down in our airplane, they're, they're, so they're crossing over the, the deck end and landing, probably doing at least 150 miles an hour or more. So, and it's a very heavy beast, so the turbulent may move it a bit, but it doesn't have any real great effect. This thing, when it's coming in, has to stop, remember, to land. So when it's coming over the back end of the ship where the turbulence was very severe, it really was a bit of a handful. So we developed a technique, you'll see in a future picture, where we didn't decelerate down the center line, we decelerated down a line to the side in completely free air, came to a hover, then moved over to our landing spot. So I'm hoping the next one of these pictures will show what I'm talking about. Well, <clears throat> this was the actual Harrier 3 released to service for the Navy. The other thing we had a disadvantage on, it, on our side was that the Navy with their fixed-wing airplanes, can you just see that little line there? That's the catapult line. So a Buccaneer or a Phantom or anything like that, the fixed one normally would be lined up on that, the hook would be attached, the cable would be attached to a hook on the airplane. He'd do all his checks, go up to full power, he'd give a signal to the deck officer who'd be standing here, and he weighs a signal, 
catapult fires, and by the time he crosses the end of the ship, he's at full flying speed. All he's got to hope is the engines keep working, you know, for the rest of the sortie. With the Harrier, we couldn't pour more than 40% of power on with the nozzles off before it started to skid on the brakes. So we're down the back end of the ship, watching the ship go up and down, and the deck officer now has to try, when it's catapulted, obviously they wait till the ship's going up, and then they file the catapult, and he's not only at flying speed before he leaves the end, he's already to pun. We're back down here now, several hundred feet away, we're just sitting with just above high idle power on, so the guy at the desk, the catapult launcher, but also the deck officer, is watching the ship go up and down, and we said we wouldn't want, we didn't more than one and a quarter degrees nose down during the early trials. And he said, go. And I got up to full power, having let the brakes off. And then the thing which had been going sinusoidal means and even up and down all the time, it went down, it came up only a little bit, and then it went down to one and three quarters nose degrees down. And I could swear that I was about 60 degrees nose down. And I, there was no way I could stop because I would have slid over the end. This little line crossed my cockpit window, the line in the cockpit within, put the nozzles down. Unfortunately, it flew away. But I reckon that um, I would have given that a Cooper Harper of 100. <laughs> but it all went very well, and it, um, not long after this, got its release to service to operate from aircraft carriers. And after that, all sorts of developments like this, the, um, the ski jump improved the whole thing, because by that way, when you went off the end of the ship, you're going up. Now, this is interesting. This picture, picture caused a very remarkable request from the captain. When I was coming into land, on this was, I think, I'm not sure if it was a delivery flight or one after, you come to a hover here, say, say that's your landing spot. Then when you're into a hover there, having done the whole detail, you just put a bit of bank on, slide over, and land on the spot. Well, what the captain, who's up here somewhere, had noticed that when I blew, flew over with all these high-powered jets going down, or the four nozzles, all the muck in what they call the scuppers along here blew out and overboard. So when we were having our first party um, in the wardroom, not the mess, the wardroom, that evening, the captain said to me, hey, said, hey Clive, if you ever have any fuel left, do you think you could do me a favour? I said, try boss. He said, well, if you could slowly fly down the side of the ship and clear the scuppers for us, that just saves us so much work, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so on this particular sortie here, with the rescue helicopter out here, I'm actually cleaning the ship for him. <laughs> I actually finished the trials program ahead of time, so I had fuel left, but enough to go vertical, and I'm slowly flying down the side there. Now, I've given these talks, been doing now for about 15 years. I used to offer a bottle of booze for anybody who could guess, and the only person who's ever guessed what I was doing was a school teacher at my grandchild's school in America, and he even almost couldn't spell aeroplane. But he guessed what I was doing, so there we go. And we turned that into postcards and things long ago. And I think we're nearly there, guys, but, but I'll speed through the rest. Then we got the Hawk, Morshi Royal Combat Aircraft. It was a trainering aircraft, great, very successful one. It's the only trainer, I think, outside American build that the Americans have ever bought. And they think the world of it, and it's sold very extensively. But it also, in the UK, had an auxiliary multi-roll, war roll, and so it would carry rockets and, and a gun underneath. For war roll. The biggest problem we had with that, you remember the Cooper Harper rating? We thought it was absolutely marvellous after various things and we had to do, modify a few things on it and the Central Flying School came back and said, don't like it. Why not? It's marvellous. It's too easy. Not going to test the students enough. 
We said, well, if you haven't got enough ingenuity, you know, cut their fuel down a bit or, you know, increase the, the degree of different difficulty of the exercise. Anyway, it, it, fortunately they did. And then they, they took over the Hawk from the Red Arrows and um, it's, it's one of the, probably one of the biggest success stories in British aviation, I would think. That's just my guess, but it's be hard to beat it. And then the mighty Buccaneer. <clears throat> we had the Buccaneer basically uh, for developing instrument displays and things associated with naval operations. So we were not testing the Buccaneer in any way, shape or form in its own right. And it was, this was the, with the big engines in, big engine, because the original Buccaneer was a bit of a death trap with the smaller engines. It really wasn't very nice to fly. Um, so that's enough for that one. And then we had the Phantom. And that again was used for high speed chase. And also we had a modification. Remember what I talked about the Comet with sideways looking for red radar? Well, they put one of those on here. You can't see it because it's the other side. But that involved low level runs along the main runway at about 100 to 200 feet while it was being tracked by all the kinetheodolites things to find out what was going on. And it just so happens that where I live is 10 miles finer on the main runway at Boscombe Down. And they were very pleased when we finished that trial because I had to be nice and steady as I passed over the house, obviously. <laughs> and then we had the javelin. That was the last one <coughs> that ever flew. But it was actually the first fighter that carried air-to-air -air missiles long ago. It was the first actual British fighter. We used this. This aeroplane was incredibly highly qualified, intensively qualified. And in other words, if it said it was doing 100 knots, it knew what speed it was doing. If it said it was so many feet high, it knew within inches. <coughs> so with a brand new aeroplane, where you didn't know how accurate the instruments were, one of the easy things was you just fly alongside this in close formation. Then he would run cameras of his instruments, cameras of where you are, just in case. With you, and that was the way you'd calibrate and find out what all the, the instrument errors were on all the instrument <coughs> in the cockpit. We had a bit of a trouble when the 221 and the FD2 came in, of course, because we had to do flybys on that thing <coughs> when we were going supersonic. We had to try and make sure that we could fly by that at the right height and not hit it and at the right speed so that he could take the photographs and run his instrumentation as we ran ours. And there's the delight, Delightful Hunter, which again was used mostly as a trace, chase aeroplane for doing our instrument ratings. Uh, but we also did this little thing here. That was pure water smoke. And we used to fly that over the army practicing bug warfare exercises on Salisbury Plain. And we had to convince them this really was water we were spraying on and not bugs. And it was, um, got them used to how to do it. I'm sorry you guys, on my back, I was a bit rude. I was, have you actually stopped you seeing the pictures as well? Yeah. Uh, why did you shout to me? Naughty guys. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we can't go back. And then this was the final one that the, <clears throat> the Draken, Viggen, I mean, that I flew in Sweden. Um, lovely airplane. And um, it's amazing what a small little country could do. That's on and on for two seconds there. This is just to make the point, sorry ladies, but that's all my wife will allow me to show for. The airplanes have to be tested under all weather conditions. Well, so do the pilots. And if you're flying in the Nordic regions, that's, you know, how they test you, is fit to, fit to fly in the cold weather. I'm lying.
Eric, Concorde Mac 2, I've already spoken about that trip with Brian Trubshaw. But isn't that a lovely looking aeroplane? But after I'd flown with Trubby, <clears throat> I said, I'm a fighter pilot, I'm not having an airliner going faster than me. So I got to my chief engineer and I said, take everything off our Phantom, fill it to the last drop cc of fuel. I got my best navigator. I said, we're going to do a minimum fuel burn climb to the silly hours because we could go sonic down the channel. And then we're going to go faster than Concorde. And at 1.8 Mach number, not 2.2, we, we were down to minimum fuel to recover. Just had to start in. So it just amplified what we knew, already knew what an incredible airplane the Concorde was. Tornado, that was my last working flight at Boscombe Down. Um, that was the first proper test flight of a, a fully operational tornado. And a lot of that flying for that was the test flying was done down in southern Germany, Manching. Happy days. Then I went to Handling Squadron where we wrote the pilot's notes, you'll see lots of them over there, for everything that flew in the Army, Navy or Air Force, training or fast. And <clears throat> the Air Force was just starting, going to get the TriStar for its in-flight refueling. So very fortunately somebody paid for me to go and do the ground school with BOAC, British, yeah, it was BOA, or was it no, British Airways by then I think. And we flew off to America, then back through Bermuda and back home doing all in the course of service of the crown, you understand. <laughs> what was amusing, when we stopped in Bermuda, I, you know, I was a wing commander with my salary. The guys, the, all the guys on the airplane took off most of the undrunk booze. They were given about a month's pay equal to me for their weekend in Bermuda. And I realized that um, perhaps I was in the wrong career. <laughs> then I left that, and I'll do this very quickly, but this is just what happened after I left the Air Force. I, <clears throat> An old boss of mine at Farnborough offered me a job to work with Ferranti as an aviation consultant and he said it would fly in, be involved flying airships, so we're working on a new programme. I said, boss, if it's a kite you know, now, I'd be happy to fly that, never mind something like this. So the concept was, and just to get what this is, that is a Boeing 747 to scale, and this was the airship that was being programmed, planned, and instead of an air, a Boeing 747, going to have a huge Westinghouse radar in it, which from 10,000 feet would provide full radar coverage for everything that moved on the ground or in the air. This was a time of Vietnam when they, wanted, they didn't have enough aircraft carriers to provide support. So this would go up, up and down the coast of Vietnam and provide that surveillance. But as I said, there would be a huge radar inside there. That was, was three decks. That was my main job, the um, command and control place down there. Um, they had also radar operators and up there, and they even had a recreation room. Um, and they, it was mixed crew, it was fitted up, you know, for girls and boys. And one of our deputy managers at Frandy, he wanted to get used to management, so the boss said, okay, will you give the next presentation? And you can imagine the guffers he got when he said what I've said, but when it came to the three decks, he said, that's where, you know, mixed accommodation, and that's below is where they go and they can recreate there. <laughs> and he couldn't understand why everybody laughs. So we, um, that was, the, then we had to go and do some trials at Farnborough to get various measurements done of this which was <coughs> being used for research. And you can see here, like the Harrier, got vector thrust. Those, those thrust uh, things, just like the Har Harrier, can move backwards and forwards to give, give control of flight path. And you could have 14-seater in there. But on this particular flight, my daughter was the co-pilot. And we had to do some flights over Farnborough to get various radar measurements made because to, to support the intended program to provide 
this over Northern Ireland. It was commanding general Northern Ireland's number one priority for, for a very long time to have an airship because he didn't have enough helicopters, say, for the guys to keep their heads down. And so it, we had a heck of a job to persuade farmers that we wouldn't upset their air traffic or anything like that, and we would be over and done before the air show start, started. So I took it over Farnborough, we did the work, and I said, Mr. Mavins, would you like to see what an airship can do? Oh, yes, please. So I did it, and we were then up, we filled in for two hours every morning before the main show started. Because you, you, can, you can't quite make them stand on their head, but you get them to do some quite remarkable things. Happy days. And then I was very lucky, I was mentioned I was with Handling Squadron, we got a very imperious note from Charles Church, I don't know if any of you have heard of him, he became a millionaire building Elizabethan type and Georgian type homes, and he sent a rather imperious note to me, he said, Clive, um, could you supply me with some pilot's notes for a Spitfire, Mark 9? And I got in touch with him, all very nicely, I said, well actually if we had any, we'd, it'd be in our museum, but I said, I do have a bunch of professional people and we write pilot's notes, blah, 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 for everything that flies. Um, perhaps if I could visit your aeroplanes and have a talk about it, we could do it for you as a private venture. He said, okay. So I went for an interview and he got his feet up in his desk in Camberley on a Queen Anne desk and it had been Queen Anne's desk. And he described what he got and he got um, two Spitfires, a Mustang, a Mischmidt 109, a Swedish aircraft, I forget what it was called, Centeco, so it doesn't matter, and um, these Spitfires. And he said, would you like to be one of my pilots? And I said, can fish swim, can birds fly, you know? So that's what I did for a very long time. And this was, um, got involved in displaying that and having a great time. And there we are, coming back through Boscombe Down on a ship air show I'd done at Exeter, just to shore freely. I said I was short of fuel, which is a complete lie. And then also I got asked to, this slot here was a team that had been formed. They're all primary trainers, PT flight, circa 1940. One of them, I can't remember which, 38. And as you can see, this is an open air cockpit. And they were doing a show, air show uh, at Northfield and they, one of the, the pilot hadn't turned up. So they knew I had a display authorization qualification. So they said, would you like to do it for us, Clive? And I said, well, they said, well, the bloke in the back, he knows what, he, you just do what he tells you. And so for several years, I was leading this formation, let's say in the morning. Oops, that's formation in the morning and this formation in the afternoon, or vice versa. And this is a vampire, Venom, sorry, Venom, which is the airplane I was flying in Germany. And these are three ex-Swiss Air Force two-seat vampire T-11s. And for years, we, I was on the display circuit um, doing both of those. Didn't, didn't, get, didn't get paid anything, but boy, what a marvelous time you had. And then I was asked if I'd go back to ETPS again to do some two days a week consultancy job. You can see the airplanes have smartened up a little bit now. Um, go back one, right button. They've got a BAC 111 now to replace the old thing. They've got an Andover. Um, got a sharp airplane here, Tornado. And anyway, the whole thing has been upgraded, but still their purpose was exactly the same as it had been when I did it many years before. Is it fit for purpose? And, what it, and provide all the information for the pilot's notes, aircrew manuals and limitations to be prepared. <clears throat> then I got involved with the sky. You saw those flying over the aisle. 
when it was ETBS 50th anniversary, the chap who owned these airplanes let me do for free a display of the 50th anniversary. And it's interesting because obviously that's me. I may have mentioned, I can't remember that, oh no, I didn't. I started the Empire Test Pilots Course session. I haven't mentioned that, have I? Yeah, we, we had, um, I was, uh, while I was working as a consultant with the Empire Test Pilot School, the boss came one day and said, Clive, we're the best test pilot school in the world, but we're the only one who doesn't have an association. So he asked me to start it, and I said, but what about all this other work? He said, this is more important. And we finish up now, we've got over something like just under 700 members from 32 different nations spread around the world who are all members. Anyway, the, the, as it so happens, I gave up that job finally after 13 years because I couldn't get anybody to replace me. But this guy here is Gordon McClyman, who was the Hawk test pilot up at Wharton. He now works for the test pilot school, and he moved forward and took over from me. That is, the part of that is the Virgin Galactic spaceship. That's his job, when it ever, if it ever happens. And this chap is a bit, a bit, only just a bit younger than I am. happened there. And that's Bob Cole who's still instructing at Thruxton, which is where I live next to. Um, they've just celebrated last year the 70th anniversary, so you know time does go by. And this was to celebrate, this was to Brundingthorpe, this was to celebrate the 50th anniversary of that, which was just the second jet into war service just after the meteor. And then this hunter was uh, one that used to be with ETPS. He was up at Cranfield, and um, a Swedish guy bought it, paid for it to be extensively refurbished, but I don't have that, and I taught him to fly it, and then we took it to Sweden. And I used to go there a few times a year to fly with him and do air shows over there. So it was all gravy train days. And then that's the Venom, all tossed up. This is celebrating 100 years of powered flight. And my job, apart from doing the display, was to get at least 20 test pilots who could be brought to the middle of the airfield and were fit enough to walk and could meet the Duke of Edinburgh, who was, you know, the, the prime guest of honour. And there we are, I think you all reckon, and it's amazing, he's, what, he's about 99 now, something? He's still going strong, but there's... That's me, there's lots of you know, famous test pilots back there. Some of them alive, some of them not. Near Epitaph. Right, remember the Cooper Harper rating? Talking about a 10. Right, well I can show you now an example of a 10. I was flying this one day after I got to Boscombe Down. Remember I'd been posted from farm to Boscombe Down. And I'd done various conversions on the Jaguar <coughs> up at Lossiemouth. Um, but only just flown a little bit, and the Buccaneer and the Phantom. And so finally, on the f my first full week, actually in post as boss of the squadron, we briefed to fly the Jaguar with a guy who was a project pilot. We briefed on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, and each day either the aeroplane or the weather or both was unfit. So on the Friday, he came in and said, sorry boss, it's off again. So I phoned up the house we were moving, my wife was moving into, and me later, in a few days' time, and arranged to go and see, you know, where the water meters were and blah, 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 blah. And the door suddenly opened, and this is where my memory fails me. Apparently, he came in and said, Clive, he said, they fixed the airplane, would you believe the weather's clear? So let's go. 
So we went up and we were basically doing tests to find out the limiting angle of attack that it was the airplane could pull to in combat before the handling qualities became unacceptable. That's a key, key criteria and it's all done these days on angle of attack on this type of airplane. And he demonstrated the first two maneuvers and I was sitting in the back and he said, <coughs> you have a go at the next one, which is 0.9 Mach number. He realized after it might have been better if he'd done 0.9 and then and then slowed down. <coughs> anyway, we did, he handed over control to me and I went into the mover, maneuver, gently increasing the angle of attack and pulling. And suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, it just suddenly went and it flipped very, very, very violently. I didn't, Colin, the captain, couldn't help me because it was so violent. We were oscillating between minus three and a half and plus, minus 1.6 and plus three and a half G with a time period of 1.6 seconds. That's pretty violent as anybody can, I'm sure you can imagine. And <clears throat> I have fortunately in the back, wondering what the hell was going on, um, fortunately had the first ever digital altimeter where you could read the numbers across rather than the needles going around. The needles were going around so fast, my, my joke is it was almost providing reverse thrust. And I said, Colin, it's, we're passing 8,000 feet, violently out of control. I think perhaps we ought to consider going. He obviously said go. He couldn't pull the handle because he, with all the forces, his head was stuck between his legs and he couldn't reach the handle. Fortunately, it had command ejection. So as soon as I pulled the handle, he went out almost within a fraction of a second after just enough time thing so we didn't hit. And four seconds after we left the airplane, didn't look like that anymore. It looked like that. And what saved our careers was, you can probably see, went deep, deep down into the ground, this is near Wimborne St Giles, about three miles outside. It went so far into the ground, it went through the water table. So all the instrumentation was got out of the airplane, played back. And from that, you know, it saved our bacon. We're right at the beginning. Okay, that's your lot. So ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Conclusion: I know nothing about aircraft after that. Um, I'm sure there's some questions from the floor uh, for Clive. Any starter? Anyone like? Yes, sir. Did you ever have any I just repeat that because sometimes. Did Clive have any um, with the fairy rotodyne? No, I didn't. And I, although I was a sort of helicopter pilot, I've never really had a convincing story as to why that didn't get the go-ahead. Because everything I've read about it sounded as though it should have done. So anybody know why it, it was cancelled? No? Any, any other questions? Yeah, just one yes. quick question. Yeah. Hi. When you were on a five-minute flight, what was the adrenaline like? Sorry? Five-minute flight. You said men in the aircraft could only fly for five minutes. One case of six minutes for the airmark. What were your adrenaline like? I don't know. We, we, it was, we, uh, it's funny, maybe we were just dumb and thick, but we, it just never ever really got to us. You were aware that, you know, things had to happen and to be done properly and in the right time. I guess the example once when um, I was bringing the SC-1 back to base and um, we got an engine surge and I overshot and things started to go wrong and we had continuous voice transmission 
on very high-risk experimental airplanes, so there's somebody on the ground listening all the time. And for me, you can gather now after you've been listening and babbling all this time, I didn't actually speak for the next two minutes. And so I said, we're now turning finals, and I hadn't completely unaware I hadn't stopped talking. So there does come a time when you, you know, you, it just gets hairy and you have to shut up. Um, Another question, perhaps? I'm sure while we're packing up, Clive will have plenty of time to chat about mm. some of the artifacts he's brought along, so yeah. I'm conscious of the time. Um, the next highlight, as no questions, is the raffle. So if you've got your raffle.